Hello? <laughs> Welcome to Women in the Word. My name is Vanita Jones, and as always, it is my honor to be here with all of you. Just studying God's Word, it, it, it makes my heart happy to be here. It's my sweet spot in the world, Thursday mornings with all of you. But the study this week is probably you thought was a little difficult. I get it, I was there. I did learn a couple things though. Um, first of all, I have no idea how to spell the word martyred or hallelujah. The other thing I've learned is I'm not a quick learner because guess what? By the time I was putting the final touches on yesterday for today, I still didn't know how to spell martyred or hallelujah. Thank goodness for spell check. You know, I had a young girl tell me this week that she had never read the book of Revelation. She's read the entire Bible, but she's never read the book of Revelation. And I think that might be the case for some of you here, actually. I've gone through it but, and studied it once, but you know, not as much as I've done the rest of the Bible, probably. But you know, reading through the book of Revelation kind of reminds me of being on one of those giant roller coasters at Six Flags. I used to love them. Now they make me violently ill. I don't know what's happened. But, it, but think about it. You know, at the beginning, you're strapped in, and it takes off nice and slow, and kind of has that little, it's almost like you're in a parade, you know, as you're going around the corner, and people are waving at you, and they're, they're going, you have no idea what's about to happen. <laughs> Am I right? And then you get around, that's like the first few chapters of Revelation, they're like, this is not so bad. I can do this. And then we get to where we were last week with Lynn, and you get that hill, you know, and you hear the click, 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 and you're like, oh, things are about to change. That's what's happened in last week. And then you get to the very first part of chapter eight, and you get to the cresting the peak of the, of the roller coaster. You're right here, and you're like, oh, that's not so bad, but I know something's about to happen. And it's kind of quiet for about 30 minutes or it seems like it, and then it does happen. You're plunged into this never-ending free fall. That's where we are today. And then when you hit the bottom of that free fall, you're going like this, and that's gonna be the next few weeks. And every now and then on the roller coaster, you get the little lull, because you know your nerves couldn't take it if it did that the whole way. And then it starts doing this again, and then the very end of the roller coaster, you go from like 100 miles an hour to like one mile an hour in half a second. You know, and you're going into the very end and your hair's back here. But guess what you see? You see the exit sign. Oh my gosh, you know that when you go through the exit sign, all of this you've just witnessed is gonna pass away and the best is yet to come. It's not a funnel cake. It's Jesus. It's eternal life with Jesus, better than any funnel cake. It'll be the best days ever. And that's what we're gonna see at the end of Revelation. Now before we get started today, I wanna recap just a little bit so that we're all on the same page. Last week, Lynn spoke to us about the first six of the seven seals. We saw the four horsemen. Each one had their own kind of judgment. Then we saw the 144,000 servants of Israel, and they were all given a special seal. 
And then at the very end of chapter seven, do you remember we saw the martyred and all this huge multitude of angels and, and, and the martyred and everyone in heaven kneeling and standing before the throne in heaven and they are praising God at the top of their lungs. I can't even imagine what that had to feel like to see that in person, what it's gonna feel like to see that in person. What is it gonna be like? All these people praising God together in heaven. And, and then we get to this part. Because during that, that singing and that praising, the lamb is preparing to open the seventh seal. Open your Bibles, and I want you to be in chapter eight. I'm just gonna read the first verse to get us started. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. 30 minutes of silence, the dramatic pause to beat all dramatic pauses. There's been none like it ever. You know, when I first read this, it almost made me think, because it seems like the rails had come off everything on earth, it almost felt like God was so angry he, added a, he needed 30 minutes to count to 100. <laughs> Have you ever had to do that? I remember doing that when my kids all lived at home. I still do it when they're home visiting. But all joking aside, this dramatic pause does really remind me of the hallelujah chorus that comes along in Handel's Messiah. I don't know if you've ever heard it performed or listened to it. You know, when you do, it's just this wave after wave of hallelujahs, and it goes on and on and on. And then, all of a sudden, in the last chorus, the very last part of it, there are four hallelujahs, and after that fourth hallelujah, it is so loud, you feel like your heart is gonna explode and your eardrums are gonna burst, it stops and there is complete and total silence for three long seconds. And during those three seconds, you know that something big is about to happen. You have no doubt that something's about to happen. And, and it's that last hallelujah that's gonna be shouted out. And as it turns out, here in verse one of Revelation eight, there is something big about to happen. Things are about to get really different. Now, to explain the upcoming events in the tribulation, I want to share, uh, show you just a very simple chart that I found that really helps me to understand. We've got it to show on the screen, this. I'm very visual. This broke it down very easily for me. And um, shows there are seven seals, seven trumpet judgments, and there are seven bowls of wrath. Now, in each series of God's wrath, the seventh one it ushers in the next series of judgments. But you know, as I looked at this chart this week, it made me realize that everything that's contained in that seventh seal is everything that's gonna happen until Christ returns. Everything is contained in that one. From that, it's all gonna continue to flow out. And so that made me realize that this seventh seal could very well be a very important development in Revelation and in the history of mankind, as a matter of fact. So it makes perfectly good sense that it would be followed by a moment of silence before it all starts to happen when it's opened. So he opens that seventh seal, and in that last seal, there is complete and total silence. You know it's that kind, you've probably had it before, where it is so quiet, it's deafening, and you can hear your heartbeat in your ears I would imagine that's what it was like. It was three sec. It was not three seconds, like in Handel's Messiah. It was 
30 minutes. To someone like me, that would be like 30 years in my time. It would be excruciating for me. Now, we've all probably been involved in a moment of silence. It's kind of common, we do that a lot. You know, the amount of time in a moment of silence varies. They can be a few seconds, a minute, two minutes. That varies, but what usually doesn't vary is the purpose of a moment of silence. See, a purpose of a moment of silence is to focus people's attention on something. It's usually to focus your attention on something momentous or to show respect or whatever it is, it's usually focused attention. And I think during this 30 minutes of focused attention, God would have been communicating his full and awesome authority in every second and every breath that they were in this as they waited for him to make his next move. And then 30 minutes later, it happens. Let's read the next four, four verses. It says, Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with the golden censer, and he was given much incense to pour with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake." So roughly 30 minutes has passed, and then John sees seven angels standing before God, and they're all given seven trumpets. Now, there's a great deal of speculation of who these seven angels are. It, basically, most, peop, most believe, and it's widely accepted, that they were seven angels that had been given this job. This was their job to direct these seven trumpets. They don't think it's the same seven angels that are going to bring the bowls of wrath in. They think they may be different, that that's their job. Everybody has their job. Now, it also, the fact that it was a trumpet and not a piccolo would have not been missed on John. He would have certainly saw that. You know, the word he uses in the original text is salpinx. Salpinx is not a kind of trumpet that you use for musical entertainment at all. This type of trumpet would have been used to call in for a solemn occasion. It could be an invasion. It could be a impending war. It could be an important meeting. Or they need them to gather for an important event. That's what this trumpet was, was used for. So John wasn't thinking, oh, good, I need a break. I've got a little music that's going to start. Not at all. John knew that these trumpets were ushering in something big these trumpets are so important, in fact, you can even find early coins with this type of trumpet on it. That's how important they were to these people. Now, we see another angel, and this angel is carrying a censer. Some of you may remember from our, our study of the Old Testament tabernacle that the censer was this vessel which the incense was uh, presented on the golden altar. And it was before the Lord inside the walls of the tabernacle and later on inside the walls of the Old Testament uh, temple. But the priest would burn incense in there on the altar, and then the smoke would begin to ascend to heaven. It would be a reminder to them of their prayers being a sweet fragrance to their heavenly Father. So now, as you can imagine, imagine as anything in this uh, book of the Bible, there are several different takes on who this angel possibly is. 
A lot of commentaries, a lot of theologians believe that this angel could very well be Jesus himself. They don't know for sure, but they say that they think it could be because the nature of Christ's work as our mediator, that he's our high priest and presenting our prayers and are interceding for us before the throne. But whoever it is, this angel takes the coals from the fire, adds them to the prayers of the saints, quite possibly the prayers of the, saint, the martyred saints we read about in uh, chapter six, on your, I put it on your verse sheet. It says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you were judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Quite possibly those prayers is the ones he's added. It could also be prayers of the saints that were praying intercessory prayers for those that were left still in the tribulation. But regardless, the prayers are in this censer and this angel takes that censer and he throws it down to the earth. So work with me here. I think if the burning incense is symbolic, symbolic of the prayers of the saints, imploring God to act on evil, then wouldn't it make perfectly good sense that the image of this angel hurling this fiery censer to the earth would be a symbol of those prayers being answered? That's what it looked like to me anyway. And, and, and as he hurls those, that censer down to earth, the prayers of God to act on evil, is, is going, they're going to be answered. It's that time in the future when those prayers are gonna be answered. It tells us there is a time appointed for that, and boy, does he act. I mean, John records there are peals of thunder. You know, that's not like a, a boom. Peals of thunder are like you are ripping Velcro off a wall. It is loud, continuous, and it just goes on and on in waves of thunder. And then there's rumblings and flashes of lightning, and then there's this earthquake that, it's just huge earthquake. God is acting on those prayers. How many times in your life have you asked God, when are you gonna step in and make all these, rights wrong, all these wrongs right? When are you gonna do this? Maybe it's when something tragic has happened to you or your family or someone you love or you have been touched by evil and the person that did it has not even been held accountable. Maybe it's just reading the headlines every day or watching the news and you think, really, Lord, how long are you gonna wait? How long are you gonna allow this evil to, to take over? See, we know now there's a time appointed in the future when the scales are gonna tip. That gives me great hope. You know, as we pray for deliverance from evil, we can rest in knowing that there is this time appointed in the future when all the world will be held accountable. All evil is gonna be held accountable. And there's a time that he has set, and he is going to answer those prayers. Let's continue. I'm going to read verses 6 through 13. This is actually going to take us into these judgments now. Now, the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. 
The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it, flew, it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of this star is Wormwood, and the third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter." The fourth angel blew its trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkness, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked and heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as, if, as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the, last, at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow." That's a lot to take in. We don't know how they happen quickly or how that, the sequence of them we know in the order, but not how fast each one happened. But before we move on to this, talk about these, I wanna discuss just real quickly. It's an age old question. It's the question of, are these symbolic or are they literal? You've probably asked this question yourself or you've heard someone ask it. And, and you know, really, the only the short answer to that is yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, the, many believe these are actual true events that are going to take place. And the reason is because these literal judgments bring real destruction to real things on the earth. They cause real pain and suffering. For that reason, and a whole host of other ones, they say these are literal. But also, yes. These literal events also have some symbolism in them of how they're carried out. And so a lot of these have both literal and symbolic. Now I'm gonna try to point those out as we go along quickly through these and discuss them. The first trumpet judgment brings with it hail, fire, and blood. Now the hail and fire, of course, are very easily to understand. We live in Texas, some of the fire, but we know hail, we understand that. But the hail and fire mixed with blood is a little more difficult. I don't know, it could be the result of hail and fire actually falling on something besides trees and grass. It could have been falling on cows and people and dogs and there would be blood mixed with all of that. Um, I don't know. Then there's also, of course, with almost every one of these uh, judgments, a scientific explanation. I'm sure God can handle science too. He could make all this happen. There is a red rain that um, is caused by an airborne spore that's found in uh, the southern, it's an algae, that's found in the southern border area of India. And occasionally when these airborne um, spores get heavy enough, they'll be mixed with rain, and it causes the rain to turn red, and it causes red puddles that look like blood. It stains your, your clothes as well. I don't know. It could be real blood. It could be red rain, we don't really know for sure. But what I don't want you to do is to get bogged down on which is it, I gotta know. I think he would have said exactly what it was if he wanted us to know. I think what he wants us to know is not get distracted by that. It's okay to study it and, and think about it and dwell on it a little, but don't let it distract you from what he wants you to know. He wants you to see his mercy and grace in all of this. See, we do know this, the results of this judgment is gonna be devastating because it says a third of the earth 
is affected, uh, like vines, bushes, all of that? What, do you, what comes on a vine in a bush? Vegetables, fruit, trees being destroyed, another food source. Also, someone mentioned it could make it hard to breathe. Trees do a lot for plants, live plants do a lot for our air. I think it would be devastating visually too to have a third of the trees destroyed and all the green grass gone. Again, it'd be hard to see. You know, it also, that would wipe out animals that graze on food. And so there's another whole food source that's gone. Now the second angel sounds his trumpet and this time it's the sea that's affected. Whereas in the first trumpet, the, the, they referred to blood rain, this one some, says something like a mountain falls into the sea and the water is turned to blood, which causes a third of the sea to die and a third of the ships to be destroyed. Now, most theologians believe that these judgments are taken literally. Some also add that there is an obvious symbolism with the blood here. References are found throughout the Bible where the blood is, is a symbol of judgment. We see it in the plagues in the, of Egypt in the Old Testament and Exodus. We also see it in the New Testament. I want you to look at Hebrews 9, 21 through 22 on your verse sheet. And in the same way, he says, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. See, this reference in Hebrews takes it just a little bit further even than judgment. It not only refers to the judgment of our sins, but it also tells us that it is only through the shedding of blood that those sins are forgiven. And then when we place our faith in that, in Jesus, who shed his blood for our sins, see, that eternal judgment then, it falls on Jesus. It doesn't fall on us anymore. It falls on him. Again, as with the rain, of course, there is some that try to explain this judgment uh, in scientific terms because there is actually a thing called red tide. It's where this uh, red marine uh, organism will sometimes rapidly reproduce and it'll cause the water to turn red, kind of blood red. But there's one reason I think that it's not. And that's because it says the third of the ships are destroyed. Now, I did some research on red tide, and apparently red tide is very deadly to marine life, and it kills a lot of the marine life at the time. It's also not good for humans if you have lung issues and that kind of stuff, but it has no effect on ships. So that makes me think this must really be blood. And I say that because, as it turns out, the old saying, blood is thicker than water, is true. You know, blood is actually more the consistency of watered-down ketchup than it is actually water. And, and if you recall, if you've ever, I raise kids, I always found empty or half-done things of ketchup they've dipped stuff in. It gets that scum on top of it when it sets, you know, exposed to air for a little bit. It's like, a, we called it the ketchup, ketchup scab. And it's on top of it. It was disgusting. And I found it all the time. But just think about that. Think about that. See, ships' motors have to circulate water through them to keep them cool. And if it's circulating blood through it, it's eventually going to start to gum up the engines and the motors in these ships and destroy them. So it makes sense 
that a third of the ships would be destroyed if there was a whole sea of scabs that they're circulating through their ship motors. I'm pretty sure there's a whole host of other reasons ships would be destroyed with blood, but that's where my brain went this week on that one. I think it's real blood in this one. That's just my take. Now, the third trumpet is sounded, and a great star burning like a torch fell from heaven and into the rivers and springs of water. So now with the second judgment dealt with the bodies of salt water, now this third judgment is gonna take out a third of the fresh water. It's a totally different part of water bodies. Now, um, some think that the star that falls from the sky is an asteroid or a meteor. I don't know, sounds reasonable. Again, we don't know, but John does give it a name. He says it, the name of the star is Wormwood. Now, this is not the first time in the Bible the word Wormwood, Wormwood, I knew I would do this, Wormwood is found. It's really hard to say that. Um, in fact, there are several references to the word Wormwood in the Bible, and it's always used to symbolize bitterness and judgment. I put one on your uh, verse sheets in Lamentations. It says, he, was, he has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of, pay, of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope with, from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wonderings, the wormwood and the gall. We've probably heard every 13-year-old we know say this very thing. I'm just kidding. No, I raised girls, and they, they were this dramatic when they were 13. But it's wormwood. It's bitterness. It's judgment. And they're saying that even though this third judgment is most likely a literal event, I would say symbolically it's all pointing to God's judgment of wickedness and evil. Moving into the fourth trumpet judgment, you know, the first three, we, they dealt with land, salt water, fresh water, and now this one is gonna affect the heavens. Specifically, it's gonna be a third of the sun, moon, and stars, resulting in a third of daytime and nighttime being affected. A third, a third, a third, a third. I hope you see a pattern here. Did you know that a third is the minority of a majority? And I think when we read this third over and over and over, it should be echoes and echoes of God's mercy. He could have taken out two-thirds, 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 but he didn't. He did one-third because he so wants everyone to have that opportunity. It had to break his heart to do this to the world that he created. And he wanted them to have that opportunity to turn to him. You know, the literal effects of this trumpet judgment would have been devastating because it would have affected the earth's ecosystem, but I think it also would have affected mankind as well. You know, some believe that this was, not, was both literal and symbolic, that it wasn't just a physical darkening. They say they felt like it was a moral darkening, a spiritual darkening as well, which makes perfectly good sense to me because I would imagine by this point in the tribulation, things were getting kind of chaotic kind of terrifying. And I think the depravity of man was increasing rapidly. And I think adding physical darkness to this would cause the moral darkening to even increase faster. I mean, think about it. How many times have you heard 
nothing good happens after midnight. And my mom always added, don't do anything in the dark that you can't undo in the light. That stopped a lot of stuff. But think about it, she knew, mom knew what darkness could bring into your life. Now, in verse 13, John sees this, the, this eagle flying overhead, and in a very loud voice, this eagle is saying, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. Maybe a better way for this to be said is, woe, woe, woe to those who have made their home on earth. Because that's what it means to dwell somewhere. See, when we dwell somewhere, we've made that our home. We've kind of snuggled in and we've made a nest there. And it's become, it's become what we call home. It's not someplace we just visit for a period of time and then pack up and move to the next. That's a vacation. This is dwelling So this eagle is not referring to those who during the tribulation had become followers of Christ and no longer did have had their sights set on the world. They had their sights set on their future home, which was going to be with Christ in eternity, where they were going to dwell forever. He is, though, referring to those who had made their home in the world, those that had made their nest here, settled in, And they were living for the present. They didn't have one care for the things of God and not one care about where they were going to spend eternity. They were living for the here and now. And these next three trumpets, he says, two of which we're going to dive into here in a minute, are going to bring unimaginable woe for all who are living for the moment. You know, we may not know exactly how these judgments are going to play out, but we do know this one thing for sure. See, God's eternal judgment will one day fall on mankind. It's it's inevitable. He has to judge evil. If you're in Christ, it will fall on his righteousness. But if you're not and you've rejected Christ, it's going to fall on you. There are only really two options for mankind. You either receive Christ as your Savior or you reject Christ and you live for the moment. See, my prayer for each of you today is that you have already made that decision, that you've already worked that out, and you're already telling others about Christ. And if you haven't, I hope that you push it to the top of your priority list today. It needs to be number one on your list. Let's move on into chapter nine. I'm going to start by reading verses one through 12, and then we'll unpack that together. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the keys to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened and the smoke from the sh- from the sh- with smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of, of the earth." They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not kill them, and their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. 
In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were that like, looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like human women's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron and the noise of their rings was like the noise of many chariots with the horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions and, if their, pa- and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name is he- in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes still to come. That's a lot to wrap your brain around. A lot is happening there. Let's just pack it to, unpack it together here. That star mentioned in the uh, first verse, he, gives, he says it's a he. He says it's a fallen star. That would lead us to believe that uh, this is a being, not a celestial body falling from heaven. The fallen star is most likely Satan. Most believe it's widely accepted of that because it refers to a star that's fallen, which is past tense, not falling, present tense. And we know that Satan was cast out of heaven. Look at Luke 10 on your verse sheet. Jesus had sent out 72 of his followers to share the gospel, and on their return, they said this. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. See, Jesus responds to their joyful surprise that they could control the demons. See, he has no doubt. He says, I have no doubt you can do that. He said, you know what? I gave you that authority, and I saw. I was there when Satan was cast out of heaven with all of his minions. I have the authority to give you that authority. And John goes on to say that this fallen star we're, ca- we're going to call Satan is given the key to the, the shaft of the bottomless pit. Now, some of your, um, your translations may call it the pit of the abyss. It's the same thing. But did you find it interesting he didn't already have the key? That was very encouraging to me. He had to be given the keys. It's like your 16-year-old that needs the keys to the car. He had to give them the keys. And in verse 1, he gives them the key. And in verse 2, he uses that key to open the abyss. And out of it comes this, this smoke that darkens all the sky. And I would imagine it changed the atmosphere as well. We've been in areas where the smoke is thick. We know what that would be like. And in verse 3, there is a demonic oppression that comes with that in the form of a swarm of locusts. And they have the power to sting like a scorpion. Now, before we proceed any further, I want to mention that John, who is recording this vision, if you remember, he's recording future events with Bible eyes, Bible time eyes. He's recording future events with the vocabulary he had available to him at the time. So, we're getting his version of what he saw in this vision. Most believe he literally saw locusts, or what he thinks were locusts, because of the way they're swarming. They all kind of differ on what the details of these locusts are, or how they look. John would have been very aware of locusts, though, because they were very prominent and had been terrifying people all the way back into the Old Testament. 
He knew that with the, a swarm of locusts come immense destruction of the land. He knew that when a, a locust swarm would descend, it would eat everything in its path. I even read that a locust swarm will eat clothing if it's hanging on a um, clothesline. He knew how terrible they were. He may not have known that a locust, a locust swarm can eat up to 400 million pounds of plants a day. But he did know this. He knew that wherever a locust swarm went, it caused unimaginable suffering. It caused terrible suffering. And John sees these locusts come out of the pit of abyss and he begins to de describe them the best way he knows with what he has to work with. He says that these locusts are like anyone he's ever known because they're not allowed to eat plants or, or trees. They're all, and they're not allowed to torment the believers, those that have been sealed by God. Instead, they're gonna torment those who had rejected Christ and they were gonna do it by stinging them like scorpions. That sounds absolutely miserable. And then, even worse, in fact, they would be tormented so badly that they would want to take their own lives. But here, plot twist, they can't. No matter how hard they try, they can't end it. It's as death escapes them. And unlike the normal swarms that he was used to, they usually would hang around two or three months, these were going to be there five long months tormenting the unbelievers. Now, it's hard to know if John's detailed description of, of these terrifying locusts will actually look like what he described. We don't know. Does he mean when he says the teeth like a lion? Does he mean they're actually lion's teeth? Or does he mean they have the quality of a lion's teeth, like strong and vicious and scary and all that kind of thing? We don't know exactly how that's gonna play out. Is it actually gonna look like a swarm of locusts? Like, like that, do we have it up there? That, is it gonna look like that? I don't know, I don't know. Or is it gonna look like a swarm of these guys? These next guys, that's up there, maybe there. Ooh, yeah, that would be terrifying right there. Or is it gonna be something else altogether? We don't really know. See, John only had his limited knowledge of future events and his limited vocabulary to describe what he was seeing. You know, I did read a really interesting article, and it's uh, about a project that the U.S. Navy has been working on for years. And it's going to be an alternative to traditional combat drones. And they said that they've developed this much smaller drone. And what they, they've done is somehow these little guys, when they're sent out in like hundreds at a time or even thousands at a time, they have the capability to work together like a swarm. Somehow they, they're, they're able to swap information back and forth that they move like a, like a swarm. And so basically it would be a huge swarm of these small drones sent out and they would swarm over the enemy and they're going to gather information from the enemy. And they said just from the sheer mass, massive numbers of them that it would be terrifying for these people because the sound alone would be something to reckon, be reckoned with. But guess what the name of it is? This is the interesting part. The long name, it's the, the name they use is actually an acronym for the long version. I'll give you the long version. It's the low-cost uh, UAV swarming technology. 
Of course, it's the Locust Project. Imagine that. So is it going to be that, like a swarm of drones? We don't know. You could follow these rabbit trails all day long. We don't know, but we do know this. It says in verse 11, it says this additional information. It says, this terrifying swarm has a king whose Hebrew name is Abaddon and the Greek name is Apollyon. Both those names mean destroyer. So that leaves very little doubt that this swarm of tiny beasts are on a mission to torment and further destroy the moral compass of all those that are still living through the tribulation. Now, in the last 10 verses of chapter 9, the sixth trumpet sounds, and it reveals a military conflict bigger than any other military conflict that is ever going to be witnessed up to this point. Let's finish. We're going to read from 13 on to the end. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the, the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion heads, and the fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire, the smoke, and the sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses in their mouths, the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they would. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of these work of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and angel, idols and gold and silver and bronze and stone and, gold and wood, which cannot see, hear, or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immoralities or their thefts. So the sixth uh, trumpet is sounded. And a voice comes out of the golden altar and it tells the uh, angel to release the four, um, the four angels that are bound up in the great Euphrates River. It's a river, by the way, that can still be found snaking through Assyria and Iraq. But who are these uh, four angels? Well, they're not believed to be the same four angels that we saw back in chapter 7. You know, the ones that help, God, or help Christ hold back the winds. No, they're not those guys. These in chapter 9 seem to be different in character than the ones that were helping Christ earlier on. And we know that they're different in character because they are bound up in the Euphrates River. Now, there is no evidence in Scripture of God ever binding up holy angels. But we do see where fallen angels or evil angels have been bound up. If you'll look at Jude 6 on your verse sheet. It says, and the angels who do not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains until gloomy darkness, until the judgment of the great day. And we read, we'll read later on when we get to Revelation 20 that Satan himself is going to be bound up and put into the pit of abyss. So, bad angels. So these four fallen angels, I would use air quotes when I say this, they're only angels in names, but not in character. 
and they've been bound up, and now they're being released from the Euphrates River. Now, I was encouraged that most, well, first of all, most, most theologians believe that these four angels were actually demons. I didn't like that at all. I do not like the, even the word demons. It freaks me out. But John did say that these four tough demons didn't even have the power. They had to be unleashed. They had to be released. They couldn't release themselves. They couldn't act without being told how to act and when to act. It says that, that God had used them at that very moment. He gave them permission. He told them what they were supposed to do. He controlled every minute of them. You know, he isn't the one that created evil at all. But he is strong enough and powerful enough to restrain it. And this is a moment in time when he's going to release that restraint just a little. And he's going to let them out to help carry out his sovereign plan of judgment. If you remember in the fourth seal that Lynn talked about last week, it said it resulted in a fourth of mankind being killed. Here in chapter 9, we see a third of the remaining people on earth being killed. If you do the math, that means that more than half of mankind will be wiped out before the seventh trumpet is even sounded. And that doesn't even include those that are going to die from famine and earthquakes and every other thing else that's going to be happening during that time. Can you imagine how bad the world is by that point? I imagine it to be chaotic, and I think the moral depravity of man is going to be on full display. It's going to be everywhere you look. So when you look around today and you think, wow, how much worse is it going to get? This is bad stuff. Like, it's going to get worse. He says it. It's going to be like no other time in history. We can't even imagine what it's going to be like. Now, when it says the, then it says the four angels are released, it says they bring 200 million mounted troops with them. To give that perspective on that number, do you know that the total troops in World War II on both sides of the conflict, conflict never reached more than 50 million? That's a lot of mounted troops. This number probably would have been very hard for John to even visualize because I don't think there were probably 200 million people on the earth at the time. And it's caused some to believe that maybe this is all symbolic. But, but John does say this. He didn't just see this massive number of troops. Remember, he said, I heard the number. And that number he said he heard was twice 10,000 times 10,000. And every time you do that math, it's 200 million. And that's the number he heard. And, and that's not really so unbelievable today. Did you know that as far back as 1965, China claimed to have an army of 200 million? Now, please don't run out of here and say, Vanita said China's attacking. Don't do that. I'm not saying that at all. What I want you to get is that, that an army of 200 million is not that far-fetched now. It's entirely possible today. 
It's also not impossible to think that an army of mounted troops from the east could come through the Euphrates River. Because especially if you know today, a lot of the Euphrates River has dams across it because, across it because they're using water for irrigation. And there are times when the water is so low, it's, it's partially dried, or some of it's even completely dried up, where you can walk right across the river. So that's not even entirely impossible. You know, John goes on to describe in great detail, describing the horses and the troops that, they'll be, that the troops are riding. But remember, he's describing future events with knowledge and vocabulary that he had at his time. So whether this description is taken literally or not, it's left up to a lot of speculation. You know, he could be describing some very specially trained war horse that is, just has these amazing characteristics. Or he could be describing a military machine or a weapon. We don't know. He's looking at future events with his vocabulary. You know, it's kind of like when all of us, and you know who you are, that grew up in the 60s and 70s. Do you remember how we used to describe what the 21st century was going to be like? I know, I thought I was going to have Rosie the robot. I thought we were going to be living like the Jetsons. Because the way they describe stuff. And that's like John, he's trying to look in the future and use his eyes from where he is to describe what he's seeing. So whether these future events are literal or symbolic or a mixture of both, we know this for certain because Scripture records this. A third of mankind is going to be killed, and I would imagine that the earth would be devastated from this type of war. And we know also from the last verse, the last couple of verses, something very crazy, that when this trumpet is sounded, there is much fear and death, but there's very little repentance or no repentance. The man's heart will be so hardened by this point. You know, maybe we may be really tempted to read all this and just ask, is it really necessary for God to be harsh like this? This is, this is really harsh. Does he have to judge so harshly? Ladies, we serve a holy God. He is a holy God, and he cannot, cannot allow evil to dwell in his creation forever. In his loving mercy, he has this plan, a plan to step in, and he's going to say, enough is enough, and he's going to stop evil dead in its tracks. So when you're tempted to think that God's wrath is too harsh, remember that our God is holy. That means that all his ways are perfect and blameless. That's what it means to be holy. By his own nature, he is unable to make a mistake. And did you know that all of God's attributes, his holiness is the only one that's repeated three times in Scripture when they say it? Remember, you'll say a lot of times, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. We never say merciful, merciful, merciful. There's a reason. It's hard to say. But there's another reason. It's because holiness stands out. It's, it's, it's the lens that we should look at all of his other attributes through. See, when you look at everything else about God through his lens of holiness, you realize that his strength, it's perfect strength. His wisdom, it's perfect wisdom. And his judgment, it's perfect judgment. He makes no mistakes in his judging of mankind. So as harsh as his judgment may seem in these hard chapters we're studying, we can rest in this. We serve a holy God whose judgment is perfectly executed and in his perfect timing. 
You know, these first six trumpet judgments have been really difficult to study. I get it. They're almost kind of terrifying to read. I, I totally understand. I, preparing for today was not all uniform, unicorns and glitters. It was, it was hard. This is hard stuff to study. And I can tell you, I am so proud of you dedicated, brave women because you keep studying it every single week. And I can tell you, it's changing your lives. It's changing your faith. It's growing your faith. I want you to know that in the next few weeks, it's going to get harder. (laughs) So don't give up. God's judgment is going to just increase until the very end. But you can hold on to this promise we received back in chapter 1. It's on your verse sheet. It says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. He knows that this is a hard book to read in the Bible. He knows most of us are going to be tempted to never read it. But he promised to bless us if we read it. And he does that because he doesn't want us to skip this book of the Bible. Because he knows when we read these things recorded in Revelation, it is going to change how we live our lives. I want to challenge each one of you that as you study these hard scriptures we're going to be coming into the next few weeks, I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you how does knowing this today change how I live tomorrow? I promise you, if you do that, he is not gonna fail you. He's gonna reveal it to you. Please pray with me. Father, these words are hard to read and even harder to imagine. But we know, Father, that you are perfect and holy and you um, have a perfect plan for each one of us and for this world and all of mankind. Father, I pray that as we read through the rest of this and and the next few weeks as we study, that we would see you in every bit of this, and it would show us your mercy, your love, your, your power, your authority, and all of it, Lord, would be, just be revealed to us each and every time we open your word. We love your word, and it's in Christ's name we pray this. Amen.